This is Romans 3, 1 through 8. Then what advantage has a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. Seats. Morning, Salt Church. How are we? My name is Jonathan Rando. I'm one of the pastors uh, on staff here. We're so glad that you guys are with us. If you've got a Bible, uh, open it up to the passage you just heard. Romans chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Hey, before I jump in, can I just take a moment? I just want to celebrate all that God has been doing in our midst. I don't know why I asked you for permission. I have the mic, so whether you want me to do that or not, I'm going to do that. Uh, Guys, we're not even 10 weeks old, and uh, we've seen six people get baptized. Uh, We've launched four different home groups. Uh, People are reading their Bible, some for the very first time. Uh, People are finding healthy community and a place to belong. Uh, People are using their gifts uh, to serve in the church. It's it's been an amazing, amazing season. Uh, It's crazy to think that this time last year, this room didn't exist. The fact that you guys are gathered here this morning is proof that Jesus is upholding his promise to build his church. And and I don't say that uh, to make uh, Salt Church out to be this cool, hip church where we're collecting Christians because we want to be the most popular church in town. I say that to remind us of who we are and why we're here, Uh, that we want to commission Christians out to be disciple makers, to bring the gospel to our campus and to our city, not so that Salt Church has uh, fame and glory, but so that Jesus Christ in his name has fame and glory. Amen? Amen. Uh, it has been an amazing story to be a part of. I'm, I'm super glad to be here. I'm glad that you are here uh, as well. All right, sermon time. Let me begin uh, our time together by asking this question. Have you ever been in an argument where you know that you lost or you know that you're wrong, but you keep arguing anyway because you will only care about winning the argument and you're not going to admit that you're wrong. You're not going to admit that you lost, right? Like you're in an argument, you know you lost, you know you're wrong, but you're going to keep arguing anyway because all you care about is winning the argument. Let me give you some examples. You ever been in a fight with your spouse about losing the car keys, right? You're, my wife's laughing in the front row because this is probably a daily occurrence in our house. Uh, your wife's like, hey, like, if you are just more organized, if you just put your stuff where you left it the same time every time, then you wouldn't lose your stuff, right? Like you would always be able to find it. And then you chime back like, no, like I know, I remember I put my car keys on the kitchen counter. Unless we are like being haunted by ghosts, somebody moved the keys because I know I put them there. 
And then like halfway through that sentence, you realize like, oh yeah, I did actually move the car keys to the bedroom and they're on the dresser. But you're not going to admit that because you're not going to lose this argument. So you just kind of like mosey on into the bedroom like you're on a, a, an investigation to find the keys and then you stumble upon them. You magically stumble upon them in your dresser and you're like, hey, I found the keys. Who put them on the dresser, right? Because you're not going to admit that you did that. You're going to blame that on the dog. You're going to blame that on your kids. You're going to blame that on a ghost. Anything to win that argument. All right, try this one out. Uh, let's say you've been doing something in your job the same way for years. You've been in your career for a while and you have a particular way of doing a certain task. Let's say it's filing a report or hanging drywall or uh, running a meeting. You have a way that you do it that works for you. And then some young buck gets hired and on the first week of the job, they have this new idea that they wanna try out. Uh, They have this life hack that they think can make things easier. And as you look at it, like in your heart, you know that's actually a really good idea. Like that would make things so much better. It would improve things so much. But do you say that? Hey, let's, this, let's try it. It's a good idea. No, you don't say that. You want to win this argument. So you get into an argument and you're like, here's seven reasons why you're an idiot and your idea is just hot garbage and isn't going to work, right? Well, like you would rather be wrong about the idea or, or like you're not okay with being wrong about the idea. So you'd rather get in an argument so that you can win. All right, last one. Uh, let's say you are doing uh, a game of some kind and you've lost, right? Let's say you are in a game of basketball or let's say you're playing a game of Settlers of Catan um, or let's say you're playing the video game Madden on your PlayStation or Xbox and you've lost the game, but you're not going to admit that this loss is legit. So what do you do? you get into an argument to show that the game was unfair, right? Like, I didn't lose in basketball to you. You committed four or five fouls that I just never called, right? Uh, I didn't lose in Settlers of Catan. The game was never fair in the first place. You never offered to trade me sheep, so it was not on the level. Uh, You know, or, or, hey, Madden uh, is not fair. There was a glitch in the game. Video games are stupid, and you have a dumb, dumb face, right? Like, you you get into these arguments. uh, And it's like, even when you lose something, we can't resist the urge to get in an argument that says why our loss wasn't legit, right? How many, we've all been there, right? Like, do I need to, I'm out of examples, but I don't think I need to uh, provide any more. You're in an argument that you've lost where you are wrong and you are not going to give up arguing. You will defend yourself to the very end because all that matters is winning the argument. Now, I say all that to set this up because this is exactly where Paul is in the first eight verses of chapter three. The apostle Paul is going to lay out for us a hypothetical argument. And it's an argument that he's probably pulling from real life experience that people have argued with him. And so he sets up this hypothetical argument. And in this argument, the opponents of Paul, they don't care about the truth of scriptures. They don't care about if Paul is right or not. In fact, they are wrong, but they don't care. They are going to defend themselves to the end. They, they just want to win. And it's important to note that the person arguing with Paul in this text is not some, uh, some outside skeptical person who's coming to Christianity with genuine doubts and genuine questions about the faith. Uh, the book of Jude actually says we should have mercy on people like that. 
Instead, the, per, the person that's arguing with Paul here is a religious insider, a, a religious insider who just simply won't admit that they are wrong. And if you don't think religious people uh, will argue about something they're wrong about, if you don't think religious people uh, will argue something just for the sake of winning, just hop onto Twitter and Facebook. It happens there all the time, right? And I think this matters for us because whether you are religious or not, I think we all have moments in life where we don't really care about the truth of Christianity or the scriptures. We just want to win an argument with God and others, right? Like we don't care if the Bible is true. We just want to live how we want. And so we come up with arguments to justify that right? We don't think we're that bad. And so we come up with fake arguments to show that God is a monster for even judging our sin in the first place. We're we're so attached to our self-sufficiency and pride. So we we come up with arguments as a cover to just, to refuse to admit that we are wrong, whatever it takes to win the argument. But my plea for us this morning is that we, as a church, would lay down our bad faith arguments that prop ourselves up and make ourselves look awesome and avoid the truth and instead just come to the scriptures honestly that they might change us. Because the truth is we don't have to win an argument because everything that we need was already won for us on the cross by Jesus. This morning it's my hope and my prayer that he turns our arguments that we use to defend ourselves into agreements with the scriptures, knowing that Jesus is the ultimate defender of our souls. So with that said, let's turn to scriptures. And real quick, let me catch us up on kind of where we have been. Um, In Romans 1, verse 18, Paul kind of transitions out of his introduction to the letter into the meat of his text. And Romans 1, 18 says this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Then for the rest of chapter one, he's going to spell out, hey, this is the ungodliness and the unrighteousness that we see out in the world. And then in chapter two, he shifts it and turns the tables and says, like, you guys in the church, guess what? You're guilty of the exact same ungodliness and unrighteousness out in the world. And then as we come into chapter three, Paul almost anticipates the questions that this religious crowd is going to have at Paul accusing them of being condemned in their sins. And again, he comes up with this hypothetical argument. It's probably based on real arguments that Paul has had in real life where these uh, religious churchgoers, they want to take Paul uh, to task here. The technical term for this is called a, a diatribe or diatribe. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but you can sound cool the next time you're hanging out with friends. There's your word of the day, a diatribe. All right, there is... Guys, there's an amazing eight questions that Paul brings up here in eight verses. Nine, if you count the the one question he uses as an answer to one of the questions. Um, But don't worry, I'm not preaching an eight-point sermon. Uh, Each question kind of comes with a pair. So there's almost like a question and then a follow-up question. So I'm only going to preach a four-point sermon. But I promise uh, it won't be as long. It'll probably be around the same. So, all right, let's jump into uh, the first pair of questions. Uh, Hopefully you found your way to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read the first verse there. This is Paul uh, bringing up the first set of questions. He says this, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? So there's your first two questions. And in order to understand these questions, you have to go back to the end of chapter 2, where Paul basically says this. He says, hey, 
Like what makes you really a part of the people of God, what makes you really Jewish is not your ethnicity. It's not the family background that you have. It's not the fact that you read the law. It's not the fact that you go to temple and and make sacrifices. It's not that you've been circumcised. What makes you really part of the the people of God, what makes you really Jewish is a matter of the heart. Do you you have faith in God? Has, Has the Holy Spirit entered and started changing you from the inside out? Have you trusted in Christ and turned from your sins and seen Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior? If we were to bring this into our modern day, we might say it like this. Hey, what makes you a Christian is not the fact that you're an American. What makes you a Christian is not the fact that your parents were Christian or the fact that you read the Bible or the fact that you go to a church gathering or even that you've been baptized. What makes you a Christian is a matter of the heart. Do you have faith in God? Have you turned from your sins and repented? Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? Has the Holy Spirit come inside you and changed you from the inside out? That's what makes you a Christian. That's what makes you a true part of the people of God. And so this argument begins by anticipating this question. If doing Jewish things doesn't really make you Jewish, then what's the point of doing any of them, right? Or, or we might say it like this in our culture. If growing up in the church doesn't really matter, then what advantage is there for the church kid? Why, should, why are we here? Why should we raise our families in the church? Well, let's find out Paul, uh, Paul's answer to that. He's gonna answer that question in verse two. It says this. So what, it, what advantage? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. This is not the response you expect from Paul, right? You expect Paul to say like, hey, actually there is no advantage to being a Jewish person or to growing up in the church. And in fact, Paul will say as much in verse nine, because when it comes to salvation, when it comes to being a part of the people of God, when it comes to actually being a Christian, there is no advantage. Everybody is equal under the cross. All of us are sinners and all of us need Jesus. So whether you grew up in the church or you grew up outside the church, whether you were Jewish or a Gentile, everybody is equal. That's where Paul is gonna go. There is no advantage when it comes to salvation. But here he says there is an advantage. In fact, he says there's lots of advantages, right? Notice he says to begin with, like he's gonna start a list. Like if you say to begin with, it usually implies there's more than one. Um, but if you keep reading, he doesn't, he only lists the one advantage. Um, this is actually a list that Paul will bring back up later in chapter nine. He'll list out lots more of advantages there. But here, all he says is the only advantage or the only advantage he lists at this moment is the oracles of God. The oracles of God is the scriptures. It's the story that God had written among the people of God. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, for the Jewish person and for the church kid, the one advantage that you do have is you've got the Bible. You've got the scriptures. Now, how is this an advantage? Because the Bible's not, what I just said, remember, reading the law, reading the scriptures is not what makes you a Christian. So how is this an advantage? Well, we need to ask, in order to answer that question, we have to ask the question, what's the point of the Bible? 
what is the point of the Bible? What's the point of God's law? What's the point of the stories that you read in the Old Testament? What's the point of the prophets and the Psalms? What's the point of the book of Romans? It's not what you think it is. Oftentimes when we talk about the, the scriptures and we say like, why is this written? We will, we will say, hey, the, the, the Bible is a bunch of stories that teach us how to live for God. As, almost as if the Bible is an owner's manual uh, on, on your car telling you how each part works. Like read the Bible and it'll tell you how each part of your life is supposed to work and how you are supposed to live. But guys, that's not the point of the Bible. The Bible is actually one giant story sharing the same truth over and over and over and over again. And that's that you and I cannot live the way that God has designed us to live. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need a savior. The Bible's not an owner's manual. The Bible's an x-ray machine exposing our need for the medicine of a savior. It exposes the problem that we need, a savior who is Jesus. I think Homer Simpson knows more about the Bible than most Americans. There's an episode of The Simpsons where Homer Simpson says this, the Bible, talk about a preachy book. Everybody in here is messed up except for this one guy. He's right. That's the whole point of the Bible. Everybody is messed up except for Jesus. So put this all together. If anyone should have known their need for a savior, it should have been the Jewish people. If anyone should know their need for Jesus, it should be the church kid. Why? The advantage they have is they have access to the scriptures. If they read this over and over and over again, the effect that it's supposed to produce in us is that we see our sin and we see our need for Jesus. That's the advantage. But yet how often does the church kid not see their need for Jesus? How often do they not take advantage of their own advantage? How often does our proximity to the Bible create in us an attitude of self-righteousness rather than an awareness of our unrighteousness? Pastor and author Tim Keller says this. He says, if you grew up outside the church and you have become a Christian, that's a miracle. But if you grew up inside the church and you became a Christian, that might be more of a miracle. Why does he say that? Because for the church kid, it's often so hard to see that our self-righteousness is just as wicked as the unrighteousness of the non-church kid. Guys, unrighteousness says, I don't want God. But self-righteousness says, I don't need God. Both are a rejection of God. And as a former church kid, I can tell you, I struggled with this. I grew up thinking, man, my testimony is so boring I didn't do drugs. I didn't uh, sleep with my girlfriend. I, di- I didn't go to jail. I didn't get drunk, right? So my testimony is undramatic and boring because I didn't, needed to be, I didn't need to be saved from those things. But do you know what I needed to be saved from? I needed to be saved from thinking that somehow my sins weren't as bad as those sins because self-righteousness and unrighteousness are both condemned under the cross, I needed saving from thinking that those sins were somehow worse than my own sins. Guys, the subtle lie that every church kid grows up believing is that what they really need is not redemption, just improvement. Guys, we, we all need to be made new. And the irony for the church kid is that they need to be saved from the belief that they don't think they need to be saved. 
Salt Church, there's an advantage for the church kid, but only if they would lay down their argument that says their spiritual resume is what makes them acceptable before God. And see the scriptures as what they really are, an exposure of our need for a savior who is Jesus. All right, moving on to the second set of questions. So Paul kind of keeps tracing this argument that people are wanting to have with him. And in verse three, it says this. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? There's your two questions, right? Does the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of people nullify the faithfulness of God? All right, so it's important to understand the Old Testament here if we're going to understand these questions and why Paul is bringing this up. If you see uh, in your Old Testament, is, or you will see in your Old Testament, Israel is promised by God uh, to be saved, that Israel will always be God's people, that God will always be faithful to Israel. He is going to save them. Uh, And this promise comes up over and over and over and over and over again. God reiterates, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to save you. You will always be my people. And the reason it comes up over and over and over again in the Old Testament is because Israel is constantly unfaithful. Over and over and over and over and over again, they screw up. Right? And yet God is like, no, I'm, you will always be my people. I will always save you and I will ultimately uh, take care of you. So the argument here that Paul is really uh, bringing up is hey, if Israel and the Jewish people have been promised salvation, then why in Paul's day, now that Jesus has come, do so many Jewish people reject the faith? Why do so many of them miss the salvation that God has provided? You could also ask, Uh, in our day, if there is really an advantage to growing up in the church, then why are so many church kids leaving the church in droves? Why are so many people rejecting the faith? At the end of the the day, you could say it like this. If God is so powerful to save, then why does it seem like so many are not being saved? Does our unfaithfulness weaken God's faithfulness to us? I'm not gonna lie. Guys, this brings up some really hairy topics to untangle, right? Like, what really is the fate of Israel as the people of God? What what happens to them? We say that God's word doesn't return void, meaning God's word always has an effect on people. If that's true, then why do so many people who hear God's word reject it? Does it always return, or does it always not return void, right? Like, if God has chosen to save some people, then does that, is the reverse of that true? Meaning that God has chosen not to save other people, right? Why doesn't God save everyone? <laughs> I promise um, we're gonna come back to these questions. I don't have time this morning uh, to unpack them. In fact, Paul doesn't unpack them in these texts. Stay with us because when, we're, when we go through Romans 9 through 11, Paul will unpack these questions in greater detail. Um, Uh, So stay with us until then. If you absolutely need answers right now on these questions, you can email me. My email is keith at saltchurchgreeley.org. That's, I'm just kidding. But for real, you can come find us afterwards. Uh, We can talk about some of these questions. Uh, For now, what Paul does is he kind of just shuts down the argument. Again, he's gonna come back. He'll address some of these hairy questions. But for now, he just shuts down the argument. And in verse four, he says, by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. That phrase, by no means, uh, he uses it twice in this section. It's a very emphatic statement. Like Paul is like ready to go toe to toe with these guys. Um, It's a very strong statement. It means like not in a thousand years or 
uh, not on your life or H-E double hockey sticks, no. Like he's very uh, uh, intense in this moment. And then the the next sentence, uh, Paul replaces the word faithful with the word true and the word unfaithful with liar. So in other words, Paul kind of just flat out says, hey, God is still faithful even if everyone was unfaithful. Or or to put it another way, even if every person accuses God of being unfaithful, God will still be faithful to his promise to save. It's almost as if if Paul is saying, even if everyone rejects God, God is still going to save. And I'm not going to lie to you, there's problems with that. Like, my brain went to a thousand different directions with this uh, this week. Um, I pulled out my hair over this text. It took me two days just to write this point. Because I wish Paul would have been more clear. I'm like, Paul, like, what you're saying? Like, there's a lot of unanswered questions here. I wish, I wish you would have been more clear. I wish you wouldn't have been so confusing. And uh, I want to confess this because... I know when I read Paul, when I read especially the book of Romans, I can't be the only one in this room that looks at it and is like, Paul, what are you talking about, bro? Like, what the heck? Use the comma. You're not making any sense, right? Like, I like to think that um, I, I'm smartly educated. I know I'm public schooled. I, I know I went to school in Florida, but I like to think that I can read good. Th- that joke will catch up to you in a second. Um, but for real, Paul, like, is super confusing. And... Um, if you feel that way, if you, when you read Paul, I have good news for you because guess what? The Bible says that about Paul's writings. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, literally says this about Paul's writings. I'm not paraphrasing this. This is Peter. He says this. There are some things in them. He's talking about Paul's writing. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. And all of God's people said, amen, right? Like, thank you, Peter, for writing that. I'm not the only one that feels that way, Right? Um, but here's the thing. Just because things are hard to understand does not mean that they are unknowable. We can know the truths of the scriptures. And as much as Paul can be confusing in his theology, and as much as I want to push back against Paul and be like, I wish you would have created more. I think what Paul is doing here is just trying to remind us of a simple truth. And that's this. There's nothing in this universe that can undo the faithfulness of God. Church, let me say that again. There is nothing in this universe that can undo the faithfulness of God. There's no amount of sin that is going to somehow overcome God's plan to save. There is no amount of sin that somehow puts you on the outside of God's grace. There is no amount of sin in you and on you that God cannot wash clean through his grace and through his mercy. Or as we often sing in this place, my sin was great, your love was greater. Though my sins, though they are many, your mercy is more. If you're here today and you think that you've out-sinned the grace of God, you think, oh, I, that one thing I told God that I would never do again, I did it again this week, maybe even last night. If you're here this morning and you think there's no way that God is going to forgive me this time, I've asked for forgiveness over and over and over and over again, and I'm just waiting for the time that God's gonna say, no, I'm not going to give you forgiveness anymore. You need to hear this. 
the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness offered towards you for your sins is enduring forever and sufficient to save. Do you know why? Because what Jesus did on the cross is permanent and enduring and sufficient. Even when it looks like the deck is stacked against God and his back is up against the wall and the accusations pile up against him and his plan seems so far off course, he will always come through. Guys, God is not a 911 call responding to an emergency that was unforeseen. God is not a, a military operation instituting a contingency plan because the main mission got so far off course. That, like, Jesus' plan to seek and save the lost was never plan B. He was and is and always will be mighty and faithful to save. Now, Salt Church, I wish I could stand up here and tell you how this plan is ultimately going to play out for every single person, Jewish or otherwise. But the truth is, there's some things here that are a mystery. How is God going to make good on his promise to save when so many people reject the faith? I don't know, but I know he can work that out. Do you know how I know? It's not just because I believe that God is faithful. I know he's faithful. He proved it some 2,000 years ago at a cross on Calvary. Because if God is going to offer up his one and only son that we might be saved, he's not so unkind to leave us hanging at the end of history, wondering why he chose to do what he did. He can be trusted. He's faithful. It's interesting that Paul concludes uh, his answer to the question of this argument by quoting from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a famous uh, psalm where David confesses his sin of stealing Bathsheba, uh, getting her pregnant, and then killing her husband, Uriah, to cover up the whole thing. Uh, It's one of the worst sins committed in the Old Testament because it's done by one of the godliest men. And Psalm 51 is David's prayer of confession for that sin. And Paul quotes it here as David writes. He says that you, he's talking about God here, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you, God, are judged. What David means there is he's saying, hey, God, you have the right to judge me for my sin. In fact, you are faithful. Uh, like you, in order to uphold your faithfulness, you need to judge me for that sin. Even if anybody else would come to you, other people might come to you with their sin and say, God, you don't have the right to judge me for that. David in this posture is saying, no, God, you do have the right to judge me for that sin. And yet David, a few verses earlier in Psalm 51, pleads for forgiveness. He pleads for mercy and God gives him that. He forgives him of his sin. How can God do that? It's not because God was unfaithful to judge David's sin. It's because God was faithful to judge David's sin on a cross with Jesus, where he judges my sin and he judges your sin. See, there's never a moment where God's not faithful. No matter how unfaithful we are, his faithfulness will always be there to catch us. Because the great tragedy of the Bible is not that people are unfaithful to God. It's not that people are unfaithful to God. That's not the great tragedy of the Bible. The great tragedy of the Bible is that people refuse to admit that God himself is faithful. Because the great tragedy of the Bible is those that wish to continually argue with God and never admit that he's right. I used to think at the end of history, when when God judges the world and there's the new heavens and, um, and the new earth, 
and everyone can see God seated on his throne and, and they, they know who he is. I used to think that at that moment, no one would be able to say to God, you are unfair, God. You can't judge me for my sin. How dare you not save me? I used to think that no one would be able to say that because God could just explain himself. And this is why I did what I did and here's who I am. And no one would be able to thwart the explanation of God. But now I believe there will be people who will look at God on judgment day and they will say, God, you're not fair. You judged me wrongly. How dare you judge me for that? Even if God explained himself, they will still say that. And that's precisely why that person will be separated from God forever. Not just because they were unfaithful, but because they refused to admit that God was faithful. They'll never stop arguing because all they want to do is win. They'll never admit that God was right to judge them like David was. And because they'll never admit that God was right to judge them for their sin, they'll never be made right with God. Guys, may that never be for us. Guys, the beginning of salvation is admitting that God is faithful to judge us in our sins. That's the beginning path of salvation. The beginning part of salvation is admitting that God is faithful even when we're not. May we always be a church that admits that and lay down our desire to prove that God is somehow in the wrong and would we admit that we are wrong and that he is faithful to his promises to us. All right, third set of questions. Romans 3, uh, verse 5, says this. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Okay, so the argument, guys, has now gone into the absurd. You guys ever played devil's advocate and not really hold that position, but you're just playing devil's advocate just because you want to win the argument? You don't even agree with what you're arguing, but you're going to argue it anyway, right? That's literally what's happening in these questions. It's basically saying like, hey, well, if I do a bunch of bad things and then God judges me for those things, aren't I highlighting the righteousness and holiness of God when he judges me for that? So technically I'm doing a good thing, right? So why would God judge me for that? Paul then says in parentheses, I love this. He says, I speak in a human way, which if you translate that in the Greek, that means there is such a thing as dumb questions. That's what Paul is saying here. Like, you, you've gone off the rails in this argument, right? Paul has a pretty simple answer here. He says, he's back to the by no means thing. The by no means. And then he has this question, for then how could God judge the world? Basically what Paul is saying is, hey, look, if you're gonna say that God judging the world and for us for our sins leads to the good of showing off his holiness and righteousness, then we can justify any kind of sin because all sin would lead to that. And then God really shouldn't judge anything, Right? Because the scriptures never endorse sin, never. Just because God can bring good out of sin does not justify it, right? And, and here's the thing, even when anybody sins in the first place, nobody is sinning thinking like, I can't wait to highlight God's judgment and his holiness and his righteousness. When you sin, you're selfish and self-seeking. You're not thinking about God. Just because God can bring good out of sin does not mean that our sin is ever okay. Growing up, I played a, a lot of wiffle ball with my uh, older brother. And uh, anybody play wiffle ball growing up? It's a fun game. Uh, 
Anyway, my, my brother, uh, it was fun for a while. Uh, my brother uh, one day figured out how to throw this like really uh, disgusting breaking pitch that I could not hit. This thing just curved and dropped off a table. And uh, after like the sixth strikeout, I'm swinging and missing at this pitch left and right. And I'm getting madder and I'm getting hotter. And my frustration finally boils over as he strikes me out again. And I take my little plastic bat and I chuck it in anger. And instead of the bat like just hitting the ground and ricocheting off, the end part went directly into my garage door and created this giant hole. Um, and, you know, as a 10-year-old, I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh, man, my dad gets home. I am in so much trouble. Like, this is not going to be good. Now, here's the thing, though. The hole that the bat produced actually exposed some rot in the garage door that actually needed to be fixed. So it led to a good thing. But did that, does that justify my anger and frustration and chucking the bat? No, right? Like, can you imagine my dad came home and I'm like, dad, let's talk. Like, I chucked a bat into the garage door. But here's the thing. There was rot in there. And if I didn't do that, you would have never been aware of that. So really, you shouldn't punish me. You should be thanking me, right? That's not going to fly with my dad. And it's not going to fly with God. God, our sin is never okay even if it reveals the, or the holiness and righteousness of God. You can even see this in the death of Christ, right? Just because the death of Jesus leads to our salvation, it doesn't justify the Pharisees putting Jesus on trial unjustly. It doesn't justify Judas betraying Jesus. It doesn't justify Pilate putting him on the cross. Can you imagine Pilate and the Pharisees and Judas all coming up to Jesus and being like, hey, like what we did led to the salvation of humanity. You should let us off the hook. No, no, their sin does not justify that. Salt Church, the truth is I have found that if we try to hang on to our sin and follow Jesus at the same time, we end up with weird arguments like this. If we hang on to Jesus while we are trying to hang on to our sin at the same time, we will end up in weird arguments like this because sin so distorts our thinking that eventually we'll shift from, I know this is bad, I know I shouldn't do this, to I don't even think this is bad anymore and I'm just gonna do it. It's like being stuck in the dark for too long. Like if you're stuck in the dark for a while, light is very good to help you see. But if you're stuck in the dark for a really long time, then light can be blinding and you will run back into the darkness and avoid the light. It's the same thing with sin. The advantage, guys, remember at the beginning of the chapter, the advantage of the scripture is that this is supposed to expose our sin. But if we try to hang on to Jesus and our sin at the same time, eventually, eventually, this scriptures are going to turn like a blinding light, like we are stuck in the darkness. And sin will distort the way we think about what is good and what is true and what is right and wrong. And we'll run back to the darkness rather than running to the light. You can't follow Jesus and hang on to your sin at the same time. You end up with dumb arguments like this one and you care only about winning. All right, last set of questions. Romans 3, 6 through 8. or I'm sorry, Romans uh, 3, 7. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So again, these questions are basically a rehashing of the previous set. They basically want to say, hey, if my sin shows off, 
God's glory. And when he judges that sin, then why not do all the sin I can do? It'll just highlight God's glory. But I want us to notice two different things here. First, I want us to see that when Paul preached the gospel, it was so scandalous that people actually respond to him by saying, if that's true, then I can live how I want. In fact, Paul is going to return to this idea in Romans 6 uh, because Paul preached grace so much that people thought that he must not care how we live, which isn't true. Grace doesn't mean that you get to live how you want. But let me ask this question to us and turn the tables here a little bit. When we share the gospel, are we getting accused of what Paul gets accused of? Do we talk about grace and the cross and the hope of salvation and the forgiveness of sins in such a way where people accuse us and say, if that's true, then I can do what I want. If I believe in that, then it doesn't matter how I live. God will forgive me. If I trust in that, it doesn't matter how I live because I'm always saved. Here's the deal. That's a wrong response. But if people don't say that, then we're not sharing the gospel that Paul shared. And we're not sharing the gospel of the New Testament. Guys, if people don't hear our gospel and think, I'm free to sin, then perhaps we aren't making grace free enough. Now, I'm not saying that is a correct response to the gospel again. In fact, this is not even what Paul is teaching. The gospel frees us to live the way God designed, not live how we want. The gospel has freed us to live how he has designed it, not to live how we want. But I think this is important because of the context this is coming in. Remember, Paul's not talking to skeptical outsiders. These are religious insiders. And typically religious people don't struggle with, oh, if I get grace, I can live how I want. Typically religious people struggle with, I don't need grace because I'm good at following the rules. So why is Paul even addressing this argument if these religious people don't hold to it? Well, isn't it true that when we're in an argument, we're gonna slander and tear down the other person instead of dealing with our own issues? Isn't it true that we're tempted to do that often? See, these religious people aren't arguing against, or they, uh, these religious people arguing against Paul, they don't care about the truth of the gospel. They just want to tear Paul down. And if that means accusing him of, of something he's never even taught, so be it. But notice how Paul responds. He doesn't retaliate, doesn't slander them back. He doesn't even try to win the argument. He just says their condemnation is just. In other words, he's leaving the judgment to God. He's not going to judge them. Because I think that's so crucial for when we encounter people who want to argue with us about Christianity, where they have no intention of arguing in good faith. They just want to win and tear us down. And in that moment, how we respond is critical. We can either slander back or we can do what Paul does. And we can share the gospel freely, trusting the results to the Lord. Church, if you're sitting here today, you have an advantage because you heard the word of God preached to you today. May it show your need for Jesus that your sin can be washed away from what he's done on the cross. Because God is faithful to save. So place your trust in him. Don't try to justify your sin and argue against God and that he doesn't have the right to judge you. Simply admit that God is right and true and good to judge all sin, including your own. And you will be on the path to finding mercy for your soul. And then go out and share this scandalizing, amazing message of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we 
sing songs about you, as we open up the word that talks about you, I pray that we would open up our hearts and our minds and our souls and our lives. And I pray that what you have done for us in the gospel, that what Jesus has accomplished for us would just wash over us. That the internal defense lawyer that resides in all of us, that wants to uh, argue with God and with others and with the scriptures in order to win God, would, would we kill that voice? Would it lay silent? And would we see that there's another advocate who steps in our place? Another advocate, another lawyer who makes a defense for us, the Holy Spirit who resides within us. And he tells us that what Jesus has accomplished for us makes us innocent, makes us free, makes us not guilty, makes us accepted by God. We no longer have to prove ourselves. Oh God, I pray that that truth would sink deep into our hearts and it would change the way that we live. God, would you do this work? And it's your son's mighty name that we pray. Amen.